0: There are certain skills, critical skills, that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed, and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement get ready to learn master and excel with your host charlie jett
1: thank you Anne, and welcome to it's all about skills this is a series of programs where we discuss the critical skills and their application in the real world my name is charlie jett and we're coming to you from our studio in beautiful downtown chicago i'm an internationally certified coach and i specialize in career management skill development, positive intelligence and career crises. We have a wonderful guest today. J.D. Hoy is the former president of the National Academy Foundation or NAF as it is called. J.D. has worked at both the grassroots and the highest levels of government to reform how young people are engaged in learning and how they are positioned to pursue their academic interests and career goals she has become a nationally recognized leader in forging partnerships between educators and employers to teach the kind of skills necessary for success in today's world. So welcome, JD, to It's All About Skills. My pleasure, good to be here. Thank you, and to start, let's go back a few years, and I underscore few. Tell us about where you grew up and where you went to school. So yeah, that's more
0: than
2: just a few years, Charlie. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I'm I was raised an army brat, right? So uh, my dad was in the military; he was an army colonel when he retired, and I was I was born in San Diego, California, but I never stayed in any place more than two years while I was growing up. So had to learn and saw firsthand as a learner how every place, every school district, every set of standards, every expectation shifted depending on where you lived. So the good news for me is that um, I think for most young people growing up in the military family, it either stuns you because it makes you very introverted because you're always in a new place learning new things, or it inspires you to be pretty outgoing and know that you got to make connections fast. you got to make them rich, because they're not going to last very long, because you're going to move on in two years. And for good for my personality, I I went that way. Um, and the only people who got a little upset, I think, are my parents, because they had to watch me in all those different places while I practiced who I wanted to be as an adult. So I would, you know, one one place, I'd be a book learner, the next place, I'd be a outdoors person, the next place, I'd be a Equestrian, the next place I'd be a, you know, a different, a different image of who I wanted to be. So I got to practice, which you know a lot of people don't get to do because they're in the same place and they have all these people around them expecting them to be a certain way. Yeah. And for me, and for me, the only people that expected anything similar were my parents, and so they just <laughs> had to, they just had to get used to me practicing being a different me. Um, and figuring out how to feel good about what I wanted to do and who I was and and it was a wonderful experience so you know when I ended up going to college in Oregon the beautiful Pacific Northwest loved it Uh, started out as a major uh, as a vet major uh, because I was an equestrian and I wanted to be a large animal vet and got into college and started that work and got turned on by psychology, counseling and guidance, sociology, and ended up pivoting out of the veterinary medicine field and moving into the people field. So I changed animals. Um,
1: <laughs> Good when, point.
2: Yeah, when I was in college and ended up uh, leaving college and um, getting an internship while my senior year in college, um, working with an at-risk at the time, that was the term that was used. It was a program for young people who had dropped out of the educational system and were lost. And so took my first internship, which became my first job, um, to actually counsel young people through their application of employment to think about what they wanted to do in education. So I managed to connect young people to employment opportunities. And then in the process, uh, 90 plus percentage of them went back on to school and to education because they, they saw the relevance and they saw the importance that if they wanted to get anywhere through their employment experiences, which they loved, they needed more education. So workplace was a tool to re-engage them into the educational experience. And I went on from that experience to you know management leading a large organization, 27 rural counties in Oregon around Department of Labor's focus on youth development and youth employment, and then was for some reason, probably personality, I was yeah. tapped. I was tapped by um, Norma Paulus, who was the incoming superintendent of public instruction in the state of Oregon, who launched um, a very large idea called America's Choice: High Skills or Low Wages, which I know you've heard about. Ira Magaziner's great work around really taking all of the research around skills, wages and the economy and fundamentally suggesting that the public education system in the United States needed to do a much better job of articulating the skills and knowledge together that needed to occur and the relevance of that learning to employment, to the economy and to wages. And uh, so I I went to work for the State Department of Education in Oregon as the associate superintendent K-16 and focused primarily on developing pathways um, that connected the educational system with the work system and did that for a number of years. And then that got the attention of um, Bill Clinton and Bob Reich and Dick Riley and the federal government and ended up moving to DC and launching the School to Work Opportunities Act um, which was really taking those same ideas and offering resources to communities and states to really try to build those pathways.
1: So you you were really an early bird in recognizing the need for a connection between education and the teaching and learning of skills. And you, so, you, you, you I remember when you went to the school to work program back in the early 90s i believe tell right. us a little bit about that what was that program and what was the uh, what was the goal of that program
2: so you know the the cool thing in at the time from my perspective is this was the first kind of legislation federal legislation that didn't take money away from somebody else to fund a new thing so you didn't lose money to get some other vision or idea around the work so What I think happened in the 90s around the economy as the federal government was working pretty hard at getting after deficits um, was demonstrating that you could actually grow the pie. (laughs) You could could actually get more to more people without taking it away from someone else. And in that discussion, um, in large measure led by Bob Reich, for the labor department was really the the construct to say, you know, let's put new money in the hands of people in states and local communities tied to this notion of connecting school place and workplace and give them the resources to pay for the connecting activities that are absent from the traditional educational system.
1: And it was sort um, of it, it was sort of an idea to provide seed money for these schools, right? Right. To right. The,
2: Yeah, the thing that was really clear federally at that time is this was a not a forever investment. This was an investment, as you say, a seed capital um, to stimulate thinking and ownership at the state and local level around how they do education and how they connect and do public-private partnerships to accommodate that all learning doesn't just take place in the school place, as we know. Um, But how do we connect those two things, which actually that experience in large measure is what ended my, (laughs) which ended me going to the National Academy Foundation, which is now called NAF, um, because it as a nonprofit was doing the very same thing.
1: Right, there was a natural connection between what you were doing then. You know, I remember there was a commission that was called the Secretary's Commission on Achieving Necessary Skills. And that was published in the early nineties. And I think the school to work program was tied very closely to that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So scans
2: was, was, that was the, you know, thumbnail terminology that was used was really a report that was seeking to, I think, articulate and demonstrate that the skill sets that were emerging in the marketplace for opportunities for people to advance were not necessarily just the core basics that we have historically thought about that's the job of education. Mm -hmm. And that in fact, what we were seeing is that a lot of the skill expectation now falling under the heading of STEM and others, um, were missing from the public education system and that the only place that they really existed at the time was in the workplace. So in order to leverage that opportunity, Um, scans really drove on the fact that to get these, you know, essential skills that were emerging in the marketplace, we couldn't just tell our schools to do more of it, when in fact, most of our educators in the schools at the time did not have those skills themselves. So building a partnership that brought the emerging market into a partnership with schools through internships and mentorships and technology opportunities was the way to expand the learning, the standards, the proficiencies necessary for young people without simply saying, you know, we have to totally rebuild schools all over again. Mm-hmm. And as you could imagine, there continues to be the debate about core versus other. So the the debate locally about ah, eh, you know, it's the it's the three R's, right? Uh, right? Reading, I never understood that, right? We talked about uh, literacy, reading, writing, and arithmetic. I mean, really? <laughs> um, but, but in, in fact, the, the fourth R that became fundamental in the 90s and today is relevancy. So it's great to have all those core knowledge elements, but if you don't have its ability to apply it and use it to benefit you or your community or your aspirations, The lack of relevance is actually what caused, in my early days, all those young people to leave, to step out of the educational system, even though they needed it, because they did not see the relevance of what they were learning to how they were going to use it.
1: You know, J.D., I remember uh, that one of the problems faced by the efforts of the School to Work Initiative and so forth were were, uh, that many people felt like that was vocational education, and right. that uh, that was a big hurdle you had to had to cross. That they the, it wasn't vocational education. It was actually education to complement the the STEM the 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 the, the, the fundamental academics.
2: Yep. No, you know um, when I was one of the major jobs that I had as a as a national federal uh, advocate for school to work was I ended up talking to a lot of people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> going to a lot of conferences, going to a lot of state meetings, trying to inform people about what this was about and how it was different. And, <laughs> and one of the stories I, I, I tell often is I I was in a, a presentation and I told them, I said, you know, I'm from Oregon. I move all the way across the country to DC. I launched a national initiative called School to Work. And half my audience gets the school but is frustrated by the term work because they think school is about something more important than employment. And then the other half of the audience thinks that work is really important, but they don't like the term school because it feels so K-12, so elementary in the notion. And I said, you know, at some point you kind of have to stand up and say, okay, let's call it education for opportunity. Call it whatever you want. At the end of the day, it's really around learning tied to application that allows young people to be successful. But it is interesting how the term vocational education or school to work, people lock on to words that bring up images that are problematic. And it's really important, I think, as you have found in terms of looking for critical skills, that we get out of the, the branding problem and we get into the what do you need to know and be able to do
1: to be successful. Now, JD, you know, let's stop for a second about what's happening in those days and just focus a little bit on what it took for you to be successful in not only working in your original area of, uh, in Oregon, but running the, the National School to Work program. What kind of skills did you find that were necessary for you to be successful in those roles?
2: To be honest, I think probably the most um, critical skills uh, are two. One is the ability to communicate. uh, Glad you said that.
1: That's that's the number one. (laughs) I think that's number one. Thank you very much.
2: Um, I think I think communication is more than just imparting knowledge. It also has to be inspirational. If in fact you want to move people to something new to something unknown something they may not feel comfortable with so so communication skills were fundamental and I worked really hard to make that an inspirational opportunity and how the messaging was was given. Um, But tied to that was the skill of listening, so I think too often, there are really powerful um, breakthrough opportunities that miss the mark because they're being forced. They're not being presented in a way that that plays to the listener's needs, interests, fears, concerns. So the other skill that I think was really fundamental to me besides communication was being able to listen and read the audience. I mean, where are you trying to do this work? And it can't be sales. It yeah. it, really, it really has to play to people's passion, in their heart.
1: That's for sure. Now, once your experience at uh, the School to Work initiative uh, was completed, uh, you created and served as president of Keep the Change, Inc., a nationally recognized consulting business, and you focused on what, you're, what you did in the past, basically, helping communities reform education and develop a skilled workforce. Tell us a little bit about that experience, and then we'll get into NAF.
2: Well, to be really honest, Charlie, I mean, I think the question is always, what do you do after you work with the Feds? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Good point. So, yeah, there,
2: there, there are a couple of things that a lot of people do. Some run for office, some go back to state government. I mean, they. it's, it's, it's a really interesting kind of pathway. Uh, and it's, for many people, it feels like a dead end when you hit the end of your time uh, federally.
1: So and, and by the way and and that you don't have any any fodder for writing a scandal book of some kind
2: exactly <laughs> or you don't want or you don't want to even if you do have a fodder. <laughs> um so I think for me it was about how do I parlay everything I believe in and have worked hard on and, and continue to do the work without having a federal government writing my check so I just I, I put my shingle on the wall and said, if people want some help, I'm here, and um, did that for eight years. And it's really interesting because uh, it, it, it came in very different ways. So sometimes it was a relationship with a Department of Education. Sometimes it was a relationship with a foundation locally in a community. Sometimes it was a relationship with a superintendent in a local school district who wanted to do something different. So um, it really, the clientele was vast and wide and different, but they all had one thing in common, and that was trying to find, you know, the magic potion of this school place, workplace, and what do you need to build from an infrastructure perspective to reinforce and incent people to operate in new ways?
1: And you were very successful in that, and then you were then you were sought out uh, as a nationally recognized leader, which you really were at that time, in education reform. You were you were selected to head the National Academy Foundation (NAF), uh, committed to preparing students for college college and meaningful careers. Tell us a little bit about that and uh, about the National Academy Foundation and its mission.
2: So, so it's now called MAF, NAF. A F. So, not like. Unlike many places, took a, uh, a a big name and made it an easier name. Um, so it's been around for forty. It's been around for forty years. When I came there, it had been around twenty five, moving on thirty years, and and they were growing, they were scaling, and they were focused at the time primarily on certain industry sectors. So they they had launched initially by. Sandy Well, who is still the chairman and founder of NAF, around financial services as the pathway of interest. And then they added over time, different industry sectors into those pathways. So financial services, hospitality and tourism at one time was called travel and tourism, Um, information technology, um, engineering, most recently health sciences. So as, as you can imagine, right, the marketplace changes, the need for those workers evolves. And, and so there were opportunities to partner with industry to bring content, curriculum content and application into schools tied to that pathway. So my, my, uh, my I guess, 14, 14, 15 years at NAF was really about um, not only maximizing the industry partnership, but reinforcing that work with paid internships and mentoring opportunities. Because at the end of the day, um, what we knew was true, um, I think right after I started which would have been in uh, 2007, the MDRC national, nationally known uh, evaluation center uh, in New York had just completed a longitudinal study. And as you know, it is very, very unusual to do a random assignment study in education, yeah. because because you know some have to get it and some don't get it, and then you compare the results. That's pretty hard to do in a public education system that everyone's supposed to have access to everything. So um, it was an impressive report, and it was initially focused on asking the question are young people more academically prepared in a pathway academy versus a traditional educational setting? And the conclusion of that report was actually, um, it, it, it basically is the same. A good educational program or a good pathways program prepares people successfully for their future. But there was not a, a windfall benefit That said, the windfall benefit in the longitudinal study, which actually followed graduates eight years beyond high school, was that those that were in the academy actually had sustained earning benefits of up to 17% over eight years. Wow. And and it was more dominant for young people of color. So the, the real aha At the moment was yeah this works this is a good way to engage young people help pass uh, academic learning on through real relevant learning but hey there's also this powerful economic opportunity if we engage employers besides just giving us content giving young people real opportunities to see the workplace experience the workplace Develop role models from the workplace as they imagine what their future might look like. Um, and in the process, reinf- reinforcing learning as well as reinforcing what their desire is for their next step. Is it college? If college, what's the major? I mean, the joke I used to make on stage all the time with school to work is you know, college is a very expensive exploration program. <laughs> And how much more powerful is it if you go to college knowing, based on a set of experiences, what you want to get from it in the process?
1: For sure, for sure. Well, now, the National Academy, or the NAF, as you you call it now, uh, has been a terrific program. And if one wants to support the efforts of uh, NAF, uh, what do they do?
2: So the easiest thing, to be perfectly honest, is to just go to NAF.org. Um,
1: NAF.org. NAF.org. Okay.
2: Yeah, there's a there's a huge set of tools and resources in the last, I would say, five years. One of the big breakthroughs that NAF has wanted to do, and other nonprofits have wanted to do, as well as let's not keep it a secret.
1: <laughs> how do you <laughs> for sure? How do
2: you how do you push good stuff out to anybody who wants it? So um, we have schools and districts and states that partner with us very specifically to do NAF through a process, through content, through instruction. But then we have a lot of people who just want to take some of the tools and materials that NAF has developed over time with its partners and use it locally or use parts of it locally. So in the last five years, we've we've been much more, uh, I think, interested and open to transparency and and letting you don't have to be a member to benefit from some of the great stuff that's been developed and because at the end of the day we want more young people to get it uh, yeah. so we don't we don't want to keep it away from them we want to give it to them so um, yeah if somebody was interested in in being a partner or just using the content or whatever their desire is go to NAFT.org, shop around take a look um and if there are things that really kind of make your heart sing and you think you'd like to be kind of interested in it uh drop me an email at jd at org, and i will connect you with somebody locally who's interested in doing what you want to do
1: fantastic you know uh based on jd based on all of your experience and uh you know in early in oregon and with the school to work program and with NAF and so forth. What's your reflection and your assessment these days of the interest in school reform and the need need for teaching the kinds of critical skills that students need to begin their careers? And most importantly, I think, is to take their places as responsible citizens in a constitutional republic.
2: Yeah, you know, I wish, I wish, more than anything else, that we would listen more to our beneficiaries. I mean, when I talk to alumni, graduates from NAF academies or when I used to go and do youth conferences with School to Work, or when I used to travel around Oregon as the associate superintendent, listening specifically to those who we seek to serve is, Probably the most illustrative thing we can do. Um, they get it. They know what they're not getting. They know what they need, and they know what inspires them. And you know, as a as a person who believes that a public education system is critical and important to creating good citizens, et cetera, and should be open to all, we sometimes organizationally get in our own way. We build we build systems to demonstrate uh, an organizational design that does two people versus four people. And I I really think places that you see doing um, remarkable results for, for students who many would say probably would not be successful are those who figured out how to light the fire of their beneficiaries and engage them in the design process for the instruction. I mean, I, I don't know that, I don't know a single teacher that doesn't want their students to be successful or to learn.
1: Wow. Now, JD, based on all of that experience and so forth, let's just imagine, and you've probably done this before, but let's just suppose that you went back out to Corvallis and, or in, in Oregon and so forth. And we're giving a a commencement address at the high school, or the high school you you went to, what would what would be the three or four pieces of advice for these young people in terms of pursuing their careers in the current world that we face?
2: So you know, um, <clears throat> I've I've done um, a number of kind of alumni <clears throat> internship discussions with young people and, and they always ask that question <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: well,
2: they always say uh, <clears throat> so if I want to do and be what you became, what would my what would I need to get and what would my pathway look like? And you know it, it's always I always stumble around a little bit because it wasn't a pathway that was defined for me at all. So I often tell them that the best advice I can offer, is be open to opportunities. So don't shut doors before they've even been offered. And do everything you can to connect with people, adults, uh, peers that are doing what you think is interesting and try to understand it. And then ask the question, does this make my heart sing? Yep. And if it, And if it does, do more of that. If it does not stop, don't, don't force fit yourself into something that does not really make your heart sing. It's the, it's the old adage, right? Do what you love and you don't work a day in your life.
1: Oh, that's for sure. JD, you know, well, I've always admired what you have done and, and what you've tried to do. And you're an inspiration for people who know what they love and go out and do what they love. And, you know, you, you made a difference. And you really delivered, and I really want to thank you for that for uh, being an inspiration, not only to myself when I was involved in that business, but uh, to to the country and what you've what you've done and what you've established.
2: Appreciate that very much.
1: And I want to thank you so much, JD, for being our guest today on "It's All About Skills." and As for me, I'm an internationally certified career coach and I specialize in career management, skill development, career crises, and positive intelligence. And you can get in touch with me through my website, charliejetcoaching.com, or if you're interested in positive intelligence, podcastpq.com. So I wanna thank you all for listening today and we'll see you next time as we discuss the critical skills on It's All About Skills.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit it's itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on it's itsallaboutskills.com. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills.